Thank you all very, very much. Uh, good morning, Covenant College. My name is Brad Boyle, not Dean Boyle. In the same way we don't call Chaplain Lowe Chaplain. He's Grant Lowe. I'm just a public service announcement. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 17 verse, through 22. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he, that is the man, said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now as desperate people, calling on you to use your word to shape us, to change us, to conform us more and more to your image. Father, speak your truth through your spirit and get me out of the way. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The year was 2003. Maybe I should have known better. My son, my firstborn son, was three years old. To my credit, made to my defense, I was a first-time dad. I didn't know what I was doing, but he had been invited. So I took him to the devil's playground. Flashing lights, frantic behavior, and noise. My word, the noise. Beeps and boops. Animatronic animals with frozen expressions playing music. Kids running around screaming. Parents running after kids and screaming. I had taken my child to the devil's playground, Chuck E. Cheese. It was a birthday party. They were all given their, their tokens and invited to let loose. And he played some games and ate some pizza, but he was fascinated by the ball pit. You guys might know the ball pit. It's an enclosure full of colorful balls. And in this season of my son's life, he loved nothing more than balls. And he got in that pit, and he played and played, and he loved to fill his arms with these balls and try to walk with them, but every time he would fall down. I'm going to pause that story and we'll return to it. I have titled this chapel talk, Idols and Identity, We Are What We Love. 
Idolatry is the most frequently cited sin in Scripture. We see it start in the garden as Adam and Eve sought to be like God, the God of themselves. We see it in Revelation as several of the seven churches are warned about the idolatry in their midst and everywhere in between in Scripture. Our first instinct is to treat idols as something external. These are stone and wood statues, things that we um, have, have moved beyond. But as we dig deeper into Scripture, we see that idols are in our hearts. They are desires which control us, that seek to displace God from His rightful throne. They're desires that actually shape our identity as we seek to serve them, serving something other than God that in turn becomes our greatest desire, our greatest good. We see this in the story of the rich young man as it's shared in three of the four Gospels. From this, looking at all three Gospels, we can gain a composite sketch of who this, this man is. He's rich, he's young, and according to Luke, he is a ruler. What this most likely means is that he was perhaps a leader of a local synagogue. From, from all this, we can begin to extrapolate other details about his life, that he was most likely a person of privilege, most likely born into a family of means. He's had the opportunity to study the law, to understand it. He's been selected to a position of influence. He searched out that law and has sought to live by it. It appears that he has been a rule follower, that he has the respect of his peers, of his community. And in all this, we see that he still has doubts. He wonders, have, have I done enough? Am I, am I really saved? And so when presented with this opportunity to talk to Jesus, he flaunts the social norms hikes up his robe and runs to Jesus and kneels before him and asks one question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The interaction really is fascinating. He calls Jesus good teacher, and we know that there's significance here and that teachers of the law reserve the use of the word good for God alone. So when this occurs, Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. What Jesus is doing is beginning to tease out the root issues here. By referring to Jesus as good, it appears that the rich young ruler has some awareness that Jesus might actually be who he says he is. Yet as we will see, while, we, while he may have wanted eternal life, what he didn't want at that point was a relationship with Jesus. He wanted to know the next rule, the next step, but not Jesus as Lord of his life. So as he knelt there asking Jesus this question, it's not too big of a leap for us to believe that this man probably already knew the rabbinical answer to that question of how you get eternal life. The rabbis taught the way to heaven was through obeying the law and avoiding all sin. And Jesus' initial response is to list for this man the latter half of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, etc. And the man's reply all these things I've kept from my youth. Now, I don't get the sense here that he is trying to deceive Jesus. While he may be deceiving himself, there doesn't seem to be any sort of guile, any sort of trying to pull one over on Jesus. And Jesus doesn't call him out on any untruthfulness. For the sake of the larger point he's about to make in this man's life, Jesus takes that reply at face value. 
You say you haven't sinned, that you've kept the law since you were a youth. Fine, let's, let's go with that. Okay, granting you that, there's only one more thing that you lack. Now, can you imagine the man at this point? There on his knees, hungry, desperate for that last piece of the puzzle, the, the final leg of the journey, ready to get up and go back on his way, secure that he's done everything he can to receive eternal life, totally unaware that Jesus is about to rock his world and let him know that he's not even on the right road. I mentioned that idolatry was one of the most referenced sins in the Bible among a lot of different passages I could have chose. I chose this story. The reason I did is I think this story captures so clearly people like us in places like this. Rich, young leaders, or soon-to-be leaders in all walks of life, believing we've been doing all we can to inherit eternal life, respected in our churches, respected in communities like this, confident that we've believed the right things and done the right things, but in the quiet places, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with others, we're fearful. We have doubts. We're maybe not as sure as we put on, and we ask God these same questions. Am I really saved? What can I do to make sure? I feel like I might be missing something. Jesus, just tell me what it is, and I will do it. Jesus' reply to this man highlights the defining issue here. Christianity has never been about what we do, but about what we love. It's not about deeds and actions, but what, it's about what we set our hearts upon. When Jesus tells the man, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me, he's not simply denouncing wealth as an evil, and once you give it all away, you're good to go. Not that there aren't some televangelists which say, wish that he was saying that. He's not simply adding one more rule onto a life built on rules. He's clearly identifying what is separating this man from his Savior. What he's doing is diagnosing an idol in this man's heart, an idol that's doing everything it can to ruthlessly be Lord of his life. So after rehearsing the latter half of the commandments, Jesus essentially returns to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. If this man is truly keeping all the commandments, then what about the first? Or what about the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If the man is obeying all of these, then nothing else should be as important as God to him. The reason the man came to Jesus was because at some level he knew that he was not good. He'd been living a life like most of us do, in Christian communities anyway, a life of plausible deniability, doing enough so that anybody watching us would only ever assume that we are good, or at least better than most. But in our hearts, we're still believing the lies of the world that it's up to us, it's up to our efforts, all the while missing the very heart of the gospel, that only Christ is good, and only through his efforts do we have any hope at all. That the gospel is not something that we do, but something that we receive.
But that's the way of idols. They define good and evil in their terms, terms that are in opposition to God's terms. False gods create false laws and false definitions of success and failure, and then they promise us false blessings and false curses for those who succeed and fail according to their measure. If, if I have enough money, if I look a certain way, if I live in a certain neighborhood, if I get certain people to like me and respect me, then, then, my, then my life will have meaning. Promising great blessing and securities, idols provide neither. Instead, idols create powerful addictions and identities. As God made humankind in his image, so do the idols we create, the idols that we think we control, so too do those idols remake us in their image. It's a frightening twist. People becoming the very idols that they made. Fragile, fleeting, and lifeless. This is nowhere so clearly illustrated as in Exodus 32 with the making of the golden calf. We know the story. At the moment that Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law, Aaron is down hearing the pleas of the people to create a God for them to worship. And so Aaron relents. Aaron receives the gold, and they craft the golden calf, and the people worship. And then Moses comes down. Moses is furious, and he has the idol ground down. He spreads it upon the water, and then the people are forced to drink the water, to actually ingest the idol that they had just worshipped. What's fascinating is that the people, that the Israelites, from that point forward, it wasn't happening before, but from that point forward, they are referred to by the attributes of their idol. They're called stiff-necked, hard-hearted. They have ears that cannot hear, eyes that cannot see. They, in essence, image what they worship. They become their dead idols. It's no different now as we take the idols of today into our hearts. As we do that, we become spiritually deaf, spiritually blind, spiritually dumb. Our hearts become hardened, and we become spiritually insensitive. Our lives become vain, empty, and meaningless because we're worshiping vain, empty, and meaningless things. And instead of worshiping the living God, we're trusting in other things, trusting in things other than Jesus, the one who has come to restore us, who comes to recreate and renew us by taking on our humanity. He's making all things new. He's making hard hearts soft again. He's opening blind eyes. He's loosening deaf ears and dumb tongues. He's reversing the curse by taking on human flesh. He restores the image of God and man that's been demolished in our idolatry. We, in turn, become like Him when we worship Him. We experience His pattern of life and death and resurrection. But it is never easy. It's often quite painful and sorrowful to dethrone these idols. Back to that story in Mark, I want to focus on a part of the story that's easy to, to, to move, move quickly past. Notice verse 21 again. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. 
Don't miss this. Jesus looked at him, and he loved him. This is notable for a couple of reasons. Other than in the Gospel of John, when it's noted that Jesus loved Lazarus and his sisters, nowhere else in the Gospels is it ever mentioned that Jesus loved a particular person. Nowhere in Mark besides here, nowhere in Matthew or Luke. Think about that. The other thing I don't want us to miss is what prompted that love. Mark tells us Jesus looked at him. There is such power, there is such compassion in the gaze of Christ. Whereas man and men and women look on the outward appearance, the Son of God, just as his Father does, looks at the heart. And when he looked at this man, he saw his heart, and it says he loved him. And what was, what was the result of this love? Jesus got personal. Jesus got in his business. He was looking at his heart, and he saw very clearly what the issue really was. He saw an all-consuming idol, a cancer, and he knew that it needed to go, every single bit of it. Oncologists never recommend removing only a part of a tumor. It's absolutely critical to remove every last bit. Even a small piece left behind can grow and consume the person from within. It's the same way with idols. There is no negotiating, no compromise, no halfway measures. Jesus tells the man to get rid of everything, not because money or wealth was intrinsically evil, but because of the worth the man was giving to it and the way it was forming his identity. It was an idol that had dethroned the one true God and it had enslaved the man and was killing him. The man didn't know it yet, but Jesus did and loved him by demanding the sacrifice of the very thing that was seeking to destroy him. The response of the man is to be expected. It says that he went away sorrowful. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't handle it. He left full of sorrow for he loved his wealth and he defined himself by it. What's interesting is that the exact same word for sorrowful in the Greek is used just four chapters later to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus knew that he was about to experience utter desertion. His father, the core of his identity, was going to forsake him. When Jesus told the man to give up his money, same story. The man became sorrowful because money was for him what the Father was to Jesus. It was his identity. To no longer have that money would be to no longer know who he was. So he walks away. I think a lot of us can relate to the sorrow of the rich young ruler. We don't know ourselves outside of our idols, and that is frightening. We will do a lot We'll do a lot of pretty horrible things 
to fight to hold on to those idols that are forming our identity. We become willing even to pay any price to keep those idols on the throne because they define who we are. But know this, idols never satisfy and idols are never satisfied. They always demand more, more from you and more of you. False gods tear you to pieces while the one true God makes you whole. Our response is most likely to be like the rich young man, to walk away grieving. It is so hard to tear down an idol. They never come out easily. But whatever you think will give you a life of happiness without God is the very thing God will demand of you. It's killing you whether you realize it or not. Because because he loves us when he looks at us, he wants us to recognize these idols and remove them. So, what do we do next? Wednesday is a day of prayer, as was just mentioned. Rumor has it that occasionally, sometimes on day of prayer, prayer actually occurs. I want to give you some questions to think about. These aren't original to me, but spend some time. This is a challenge even for a few minutes, if you're with your hall, if you're with a friend, if you're by yourself, spend some time on these questions as diagnostic tools for the idols in our lives. And if you would like them, I'm happy to email them to anybody who wants to contact me. Number one, what disappoints you? When we feel overwhelmed by disappointment, it's a good sign that something has become more proportionally important than it should be. Is it politics, people we've looked up to? We may have placed intense hope and longing in something other than God. Number two, what do you complain about the most? Ask somebody who knows you well, who's around you, about your typical complaints. If you're constantly complaining about finances, maybe money is too important. If you constantly complain about a lack of respect, maybe what other people think about you matters more than it should. What we complain about reveals what matters to us. Number three, where do you make financial sacrifices? Where your treasure is, is where your heart will be. Our patterns of spending tend to reveal our idols. What worries you? Is it the idea of losing someone or something? Losing your reputation? It could be the fear of being ridiculed, the fear of being alone. Whatever worries you disproportionately, whatever keeps you up at night has the potential to be an idol. Number five, where is your comfort? Where do you go for sanctuary? Where do you go when you're hurting? To the refrigerator? To the phone? To vent? Do you seek escape in video games, pornography, substances, just one more episode on Netflix. Where do you look for emotional rescue? And these have been convicting to me if I take an aside here to say there's a lot of times when I recognize my in, infrequency in the Word of God is because my, my comfort is my words instead of God's Word. And it's an idol in my life. Number six, what infuriates you? Can you stand to lose at anything? Is being the best your idol? How do you respond sitting in traffic? What about when somebody embarrasses you or doesn't treat you with respect? 
What is the real issue behind your fury? Maybe your self-esteem or your reputation is your idol. Number seven, what provokes awe in you? Has the gospel become commonplace? Is the Lord's Supper just a matter of going through the motions? Are you more excited about Sunday morning worship or your Sunday afternoon nap? Is your fantasy football lineup on your mind and heart as you worship? And then finally, number eight, what do you dream about? It's been said that your religion is what you do with your solitude. What fantasy has a grip on you? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Is it material goods? A relationship with somebody? Aspirations are fine, but is your motivation to give God glory or is your motivation your own glory, fame, and fortune? Maybe these questions can be of help to you as you seek to detect, dethrone, and destroy the idols of your heart. So, back to the devil's playground of Chuck E. Cheese. Idolatry is an intentional act, a conscious decision to take something that has no power and to give to it supreme power as we grant it supreme worth in our lives. My son was unable to move in that ball pit. Every time he grabbed his arms full of balls, he'd take one step and fall down into the balls, and he would struggle, and he would get himself back up, and he would do it over and over again. The balls that he thought he was possessing were actually possessing him. He was growing increasingly frustrated, frustrated that he couldn't hold them all, frustrated that he couldn't walk or function with them, frustrated that they kept pulling him down into the mess. Our idols care nothing for us. Don't forget that. They promised the world but delivered death. After me hollering above the noise again and again to drop the balls, I finally had to act. Against my better judgment and most likely the recommendation of my physician in the CDC, I stepped into that preschool Petri dish among the boogers and the half-eaten pizza crusts and walked over to my son. I knocked all the balls out of his hands, every single one, picked him up and carried him out of that pit. And he was furious. He was distraught. He was sorrowful, but he was out. Now, I have no illusions about my son's continuing interest in those balls. Not now, but back then, I think. At that point, he could think about, he could think about nothing else at all. He could talk about nothing else on the way home. They still held a powerful grip on his life. If I had brought him back the next day or the next week, same story, he would have been right back in that pit. It's not enough to have the idols removed, whether against our will or with our will, because they have this persistent grip on our lives. They have to be replaced. Thomas Chalmers, for whom our Chalmers Center for Community Development is named, was a Scottish minister. He preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And one line that stood out to me in reading that was this, the best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. 
and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. The purest and best affection we can ever admit to our lives is the love of our Lord. I mentioned earlier that the love that Jesus had for this man um, was a love that diagnosed the idols of his heart and prescribed the only cure that could save the man. Just as I believe we can all identify with this man, so can Jesus in a way we never, ever can. In fact, there has never been a richer ruler than Jesus Christ. As others have pointed out, Jesus is not asking this rich young ruler to do anything more than he did on a far grander, magnificent scale. Jesus lived with incomparable wealth in incomparable glory, ruler of all creation. And he proceeded to empty himself of every last bit for our sakes. He was rich, and for our sakes he became poor. This is how we are to replace the idols by meditating on Him, by meditating on the one and only good and true God, the one who loved us enough to send His only Son, the Son emptied of all glory to pay the price of our sins, to come, look at us, and love us, and identify the balls in our hands that we are gripping so tightly. While idols will always demand more and more of us and condemn us of our failures. Our God has met the demands himself and is neither surprised by nor afraid of our sin. While all other gods bring enslavement and death, only this God brings freedom and life and life abundantly. Let us call on this God. Let us worship and give our lives to this God as we seek to recognize, remove, and replace the idols in our hearts and find our identity in Him. Let's pray. Father, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Father, thank you for looking at us and seeing us clearly and loving us enough to show us our idols. Father, give us courage to diagnose and dethrone the idols of our hearts, to seek you as the only one worth our worship. Remake us in the image of your Son, the one you see when you look at us, we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.